Except he wasn't a jerk. He seemed like he was a very nice man. But <laughs> Howdy. You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. And I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. He was an engineer, a pioneer, an inventor, a businessman, and a leader. He came to Texas from New York, built an empire, and transformed Dallas into the modern cosmopolitan city we know today. Today we're discussing J. Eric Johnson, one of the founders of Texas Instruments and visionary mayor of Dallas. But first, what's your favorite stretch of country road in Texas? Well, I like the stretch of Highway 7 between Centerville and Crockett in Central Texas. It's the way we go when we, when my wife and I and our kids go to Orange, which is where she's from. I like it because it's the halfway point of the long drive. And whether we're going there or coming back, it's I know that we're three hours still away from our destination. Yeah, and there's so many great highways and FMs and all sorts of country roads in Texas. It's hard to pick just one part. Um, but today I'm going to go with a stretch of road that I believe it runs between Medina and Bandera up in the Texas Hill Country, northwest of San Antonio. And on the map, it's one of those roads that looks a little bit curvy, and you're like, oh, that looks like a curvy road. And then you actually drive it, and you realize that they just didn't have enough resolution on that map to put how many curves there actually are on that road. Um, it's switchbacks up and down all the hills. And you can't go fast. You just kind of have to take it easy and enjoy the scenery, and it's really lovely up there. Mm. It's like Northern California, but beautiful. Yeah, <laughs> and Texas. Um. Well, I'm not too far from Scott. There's a great stretch of road, Highway 32, and it runs for like 120 miles. But uh, there's a part north of San Marcos there, and it's called the Devil's Backbone. And I like it because, one, it's absolutely gorgeous, and two, has such a cool, spooky name. I'm taking, I'm driving up on the Devil's Backbone. And guess what, folks? Halloween is just around the corner for us, too. So, spooky Texas episode coming up. <laughs> John Eric Johnson was born in Brooklyn, New York, September 6, 1901, the only child of John and Ellen Johnson. The Johnsons were naturalized citizens, moving to the U.S. in the 1890s from Sweden. The family moved to New Jersey in 1912, where Johnson completed high school at the age of 16. He attended Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York, completing his degree in mechanical engineering in 1922, and married Margaret Fond the next year. Leaving the university, Johnson began working at Alcoa, a major aluminum manufacturer, as a mill apprentice and advancing to a manufacturing superintendent position by the next year. A few years later, he resigned. Much like Whataburger founder Harmon Dobson, Johnson took a short break to try his luck with an automobile business, but it didn't last long, and he returned to Alcoa as a sales engineer. In 1929, he began occasionally assisting his wife's cousin-in-law, John Clarence Karcher, with his startup company, Geophysical Services, or GSI. Karcher was a brilliant Ph.D. who'd found success in the early 20s with his first company, building reflective seismographs, a process he'd largely pioneered. This is a process for using sound waves to detect the presence of oil beneath the Earth's surface. He developed this technology at Western Electric, which was a technology and manufacturing supplier for AT&T. Since AT&T had no need for this technology, Karcher was able to take his invention with him to his own ventures. His new company found success locating the first underground salt dome through reflected seismography. 
He offered Johnson a full-time position in 1930, managing the manufacture of seismic instruments in their research lab in Newark, New Jersey. It was at Geophysical Service that Johnson first met Eugene McDermott and Cecil Green. McDermott was a fellow Brooklyn native, two years older than Johnson. After a stint in the Navy during World War I, he had gotten his engineering degree from Stevens Institute of Technology and his master's in physics from Columbia. He'd worked with Karcher to develop the reflective seismograph at Western Electric and was on hand to form Geophysical Service in 1929 in Dallas as a full partner. Cecil H. Green was born in England in 1900 and had grown up in Canada. He had a master's degree in electrical engineering from MIT, and he came to GSI initially as a field party chief, which is a supervisor for crews using the seismograph to find oil wells. Johnson visited the company headquarters in Dallas and became smitten with the city. He later stated that his first impressions of Dallas were of fresh, clean air, white buildings, and clean, neatly dressed people who were unfailingly courteous and kind. He returned to New Jersey and told his wife that he'd found the place to live and raise a family. In 1934, he became the secretary of GSI, relocating to Dallas. Essentially, he was responsible for the business side of operations for the company, sort of a precursor to a chief operating officer. GSI experienced great success using their seismic technology to locate well sites for companies throughout the world. With their crews idle between contracts, Karcher began exploring oil fields for GSI's own interest. That is, he wanted to get into the oil industry for himself. Karcher was more interested in the oil production part of the business than the practical and technological side. In the interest of separating the efforts, Karcher renamed it the Coronado Corporation, making GSI a subsidiary interest. Because they wanted more financial and practical control of uh, their subsidiary, Johnson, Green, McDermott, and geophysicist H. Bates Peacock got together to raise the funds and purchase GSI outright on December 6, 1941. The very next day, as we know, was the day of Pearl Harbor, and the United States became involved in the Second World War. GSI, mostly through the efforts of Johnson, secured valuable contracts to the Navy to build submarine detection equipment. Their device, the Magnetic Anomaly Detector, or MAD, was used throughout World War II as a key piece of sub-hunting technology, and it's still used today on naval patrol aircraft. The next year, the Army Signal Corps and the Navy were contracting GSI for additional electronic equipment. The revenues from this government work weren't huge, but they were sufficient to pay off debts and to keep the company afloat. Engineer Patrick Haggerty was a purchaser for the Navy during the war, and he'd worked with the guys at GSI. After the war, he came on to the company to head up their new laboratory and research department. The wartime shift in the company, from seismic instruments to military and scientific instruments, led to a rapid growth, and by 1950, the two divisions needed to be separated. In 1951, the company changed its name to the now familiar Texas Instruments, with Johnson, McDermott, Green, and Haggerty as the founders. Peacock retired to become a member of the board of directors. The seismic business, GSI, became a wholly owned subsidiary of TI, with Green in charge. McDermott, chairman of the board, and Johnson, as president-CEO, led the military contracts and electronics business, while Haggerty headed research and development for both divisions. The breakthrough for the company occurred in just a few years when TI began manufacturing semiconductor transistors in 1952. In 1954, TI produced the first pocket-sized transistor radio for commercial sale, showing the value of mass-produced transistors. Semiconductor transistors led to an even greater innovation, the integrated circuit, which was invented at TI in 1958. These innovations, which enabled the micronization of electronic devices and paved the way to the computer revolution, 
turned TI into one of the most profitable companies in the world. By 1960, annual revenue was $232 million, which is around $1.8 billion in today's dollars. Johnson was president of TI from 1951 to 58, then took over as chairman of the board until 1966. In 1961, the founders became concerned about the lack of graduate-level programs for science and engineering at Dallas-area universities. They founded the Graduate Research Center of the Southwest, initially on the campus of Southern Methodist University, before they moved it to its permanent location in the Dallas suburb of Richardson. It became the University of Texas at Dallas in 1969. Woo! UTD! Ooh. UTD. The establishment of the Graduate Research Center led Johnson into the next stage of his life. In 1963, he helped organize a luncheon at the Dallas Trademark, where President John F. Kennedy, visiting Dallas, would speak to recognize the important contributions that Texas Instruments, and especially the foundation of the Graduate Research Center, was making to the advancement of technology. As we know, President Kennedy never gave that speech. Mr. Johnson, who carried a pocket transistor radio in his suit, was one of the first to get news of the president's assassination, and it was his sad duty to report the tragic news to the guests of the luncheon. Within a year of the events of that day, Johnson's life would radically transform in ways he could never imagine. In February 1964, Dallas Mayor Earl Cable resigned to run for Congress. The Dallas Citizens Council needed someone to step in and fill the vacant position and to begin the process of healing the city's image as a city of hate, which had, quote, killed the president. They chose one of the most respected businessmen in the community, a Republican and conservative, but a progressive thinker and someone unconnected to the local political establishment. That, of course, was Eric Johnson. They asked Dad to pull the city back together, said his son Philip years later. He didn't accept right away, because Mother didn't want him to do it. But they both finally realized how important it was. Perhaps he was inspired by the remarks President Kennedy planned to give on that fateful fall day, when he would have said, America's leadership must be guided by the lights of learning and reason. Maybe it was just something that was in him all along. He later stated, the worth of a man to his society can be measured by the contributions he makes to it. But whatever the case, at an age when most people were looking towards retirement, he threw himself into his new work. With a calm, measured voice, he set about getting order within the city's political establishment. Professor Darwin Payne of SMU said that Johnson was, quote, far more inclusive, and the assassination helped change the minds of a whole lot of people who had never been part of the process. Suddenly, their viewpoints were heard. The specter of Kennedy's assassination remained over the city, but these efforts went a long way towards diminishing that cloud. Johnson urged Dallas to move forward from the tragedy. One of his favorite sayings was, The best way to correct an adverse opinion is to perform. However, he never shied away from the city's role as the site of the president's death. At a memorial service in Dealey Plaza in 1967, Johnson remembered the late president and said, None knew better than President Kennedy that we cannot look inward to our own problems alone. He formalized his new philosophy for transforming Dallas into a premier American city with his 1965 Plan for Dallas. Initially 114 goals and later revised to 205, this plan was one of the most shockingly progressive programs ever implemented in a major American city. The goals ranged from the broadly general philosophical goals such as demanding a city of, quote, beauty and functional fitness, and planning improvements in public safety and transportation, to specifics such as developing museums or establishing a system-wide kindergarten program for all Dallas schools. 
The plan commission stated that none of the goals were expected to be achieved in less than five years, and many were never intended to be fully realized. It shows the commitment that the city knew was required to make this kind of transformation. Johnson worked hard to push through a $175 million bond issue, which would be worth over a billion dollars today, in 1967. This was the largest in Dallas history up to that point and funded the program. Over the course of the 20-year program, led and supported by Johnson and over 100,000 other Dallas residents, many of these goals were met, such as the building of a new modern city hall, a central library, which is named after Johnson, and improved library systems, expanded convention center, educational and public safety advances, including the kindergarten program. Primary and higher education improved throughout the area as a result of technology companies coming into the Silicon Prairie, which TI founded all those years before, and Johnson was a key part in making Dallas a welcoming city to that industry. Perhaps his greatest role in the city's development, and one closest to his heart, pertained to Goal 3 in the transportation section of the Plan for Dallas. Bring the Dallas-Fort Worth airport to its fullest potential as a regional and world air center. From 1968, Johnson served as chairman of the board of the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport and was the spearhead for that airport's development into what quickly became one of the largest, busiest, and most successful air hubs in the world. We were determined to build the best airport that anybody had built up to that point, he later said. Johnson was easily re-elected three times, serving as mayor until 1971. As a measure of his success as mayor, Look Magazine in 1970 declared Dallas a, quote, all-American city. Dallas was the only city of its size to be so honored. Normally, they gave that award to small cities, uh, such as Texas City and Austin at the time was considered a small city. So it was a pretty big honor for it to get that award. After leaving office, he continued to work heavily with the plan program and on the FW Airport, and he remained on the board of directors at TI actively until 1977 and symbolically until 1985. He served as chairman of both the DFW and the Plan for Dallas until 1976. He also served as the first president of the United Way of Metropolitan Dallas, president of the Dallas Chamber of Commerce, and from 1961 until 1992 as president of the Excellence in Education Foundation. In addition, and especially after 1977, when he had retired from his civic roles, Johnson continued to play a leading philanthropic role in the city, along with his TI partners. McDermott was a major patron of the arts in Dallas until his death in 1973. Cecil and Ida Green became major patrons of educational programs throughout the world, eventually giving away over $200 million by the time of Cecil's death in 2003. All of these men made an immense mark on the city, and you can't look around and not see their influence, from the buildings that bear their names to the still-thriving industry that they started and the character of the city that they helped redefine. Today, many people consider Johnson, who died in 1995, to be the most beloved and revered mayor in the city's history. As mayor, he was the architect and driving force of modern Dallas, said Steve Bartlett, who was mayor from 91 to 94. He took us from what was arguably the worst of times, post-assassination days, to the best of times, the boom of Dallas from just another regional city to a global capital. He got us focused back on building our own city. Perhaps Johnson says it best, though, when he talked in 1992 about his favorite book growing up, the biography of Rags to Riches author Horatio Alger. He never had any money. He always made some by hard work, and then he invested it very carefully and scientifically in something that was about to be a booming business, he'd heard, he said of Alger. He got rich, but he never forgot to be a good guy. You never say I can't, Johnson said earlier in his life. If you have an idea, and it's reasonable at all, give it a try. And nobody tried harder than Eric Johnson. 
So I mostly remember him as the namesake of the Johnson building at uh, UTD. At UTD. I mean, I, you know, I knew what TI was. They made the speak and spell. So I was aware <laughs> of them. Shady. Yeah, no, that was Trash no. Shady. Uh, they made the... But, you know... They made the TI-85 calculator. Yeah, the calculator. Yeah, but I mean, I had Graphic no idea who Eric Johnson or Cecil Green or any of these guys were until I went to college at UTD and they had all these buildings named after them. And mm-hmm. then slowly over time that I was there, I kind of learned, oh, okay, these are the guys that helped found the school, they found a TI, and they did all this other stuff. You know, we talked about these guys, we talked about these TI founders when we talked about JFK, and we talked about that dinner a little bit in an earlier episode. But for me, going in and reading the story of, of especially Eric Johnson is, is just such a great story that resonates. And to me, there's that thing we love to read about the, you know, the Warren Buffetts, the Bill Gateses. We like to read about Steve Jobs, and these sort of these innovators and pioneers and captains of industries who build something and uh, and you know and even put our own Harmon Dobson from Waterburger on that list you know these are interesting businessmen who you know they come in with a can-do attitude and they sort of see an opportunity and you know this guy had this billion dollar business and he was ready to retire he was he's in the 60s he was like I'm done I'm ready to, to lay it down and Texas wasn't done with him yet and then there's such an interesting transformation once he once the assassination happens to becoming this mayor. And he turned Dallas from just being a city, just a regular average city, to becoming, you know, the jet set Dallas and laid the road roadmap that we're still following today in, in Dallas, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, and we talked about in our other episodes about other characters in Texas history, is Texas is a great place for a second act. It's a great place for redemption, but it's also a great place for second acts. And I think all of these guys, especially Johnson, had this tremendous second act where they built this business basically from nothing. All of them were kids of immigrants. They they came from from being nothing, went to college, and got involved in this business and built it to this great, huge empire. But then they felt a calling for something else, something greater. They each kind of had, the main three founders, each kind of had their own direction of where they were what, what they kind of focused on. But I think Johnson, you're right, is kind of the more extraordinary one because he has probably the most long-term lasting impact in Dallas itself and in Texas. There's rich guys who become philanthropists and they start a foundation or they maybe give some money or build a library or something. But he took his scientific mind and his business acumen and he built a committee and he made a plan. And not only made a plan, because most times in politics... People make a long-term plan, but it doesn't matter because I'm only here for one, one or two terms, and, and you know I'm saying these things get elected. But he really had his stake was in his city and transforming it, and I think it's it's a landmark transformation of Dallas that is maybe forgotten today and unknown by a lot of people. Yeah, and I, what I like about it is it's like you said, it's not just a plan for his term or his immediate future. It was a plan. It was an aspirational plan for the whole city to say, you know what. We just endured this tragedy. You know, what is our direction from here? We can either, you know, just kind of go with it and be lackluster, or we can take this as an opportunity to say, you know what, we're not going to be, we're not going to wallow in this. We're going to take our can-do attitude and just try to do something great with our town. I wish I'd read a little more on Cable, the guy who was the mayor when Kennedy was killed, because it was kind of like, well, I'm out of (laughs) here. Well, it was a deal. The situation with that was that, Basically, the the city's political establishment just started pointing fingers at each other. Uh, the, the, everybody yeah. was blaming each other for the situation, and nobody could could 
Nobody, nobody could untangle their way out. And and Phil Johnson s- said that his father was disgusted by this, the, the rounds of recrimination going on within the city. And I think that did the implication is that played a part in his decision of why it was so important when the citizens council did approach him, you know, first he said, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not a politician. They, they knew that they needed somebody that wasn't part of that political establishment, like an outsider really, yeah. but respected one who could come in and get things done. Well, he was a guy who got things done. Yeah. I'd like to jump back a bit and talk a little bit more. I mean, we kind of glossed over like, Hey, this, this guy is a kid of immigrants, and then he built a billion-dollar company with, you know... <laughs> right, and he didn't do it alone. It he was, didn't do it alone. Yeah. It was actually... There were, there were All these men were talented. The reason right. I was so focused on Johnson was the fact that, from the way I read it, he had that spark, that magic spark that we see, like I said, in like a Steve Jobs or somebody. He just had that, that something... Except he wasn't a jerk. Seemed like he was a very nice man. But... <laughs> No, he seemed like he was really a nice guy to work for. He he was very driven, and he ha- he recognized opportunities. For example, the fact that he's the one who took GSI and pursued those military contracts, mm-hmm. and he was a driving force in them becoming part of this electronics business. Right. With, and then we looked at you know it was funny. We say, oh well, they did this, and they did this, and they did this, and they did this, and each of these were monumental leaps in electronics yeah. innovation. Yeah. So, well, was my understanding, you know, I knew that. Uh, TI is credited for creating or popularizing the semiconductor transistor. I did not realize that they also were given credit for the integrated circuits. What they did do was Western Electric invented the transistor, but TI also did some similar work at the same time, and they shared the patent for manufacturing what are known as germanium transistors. Right. Then they developed... Silicon, which germanium is very expensive. It's hard to find. It's what was used in all those early components. Then they figured out that silicon components could do the same thing. And it's essentially sand. And it's cheap. And so you can make lots of it on cheap wafers. So they started making silicon-based transistors. And then that led to a guy named Kilby who thought, well, I can make... Who worked for TI Labs. He worked for TI Labs. And he had this idea, well, I can make all of these different parts out of silicon as well. And then he thought, well, why don't we just put them all in one piece? And then that became the integrated circuit, which they patented in 1958. From that, I guess, because the Intel's thing was the microprocessor. Right. right. So they took that somehow. So here's, the, license. so here's, okay, for people listening to the show, I am an electrical engineer, and I will boil this down <laughs> in 30 seconds of the most interesting electrical engineering history you, you could ever see. One of the innovations that came from the idea was is that you could make all the pieces of the same material. And since you can make all the pieces of the same material, you could do it all within the same wafer of silicon. And then because you can do that, you can make a whole circuit without ever having to wire components together and do stuff. You could just basically stamp out a whole circuit that did something. Now, these were large. They were unruly. They weren't like what we think of today as circuits. People worked out over the years that you could build amplifiers, you could build logic gates, you could build all these functions, and you could do them on silicon. You could do them on integrated circuits. And then over the years, we've just made them smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And so over the course of, of, the, of the last few decades, we hear people talk about transistor density, and we talk about the micron size of how big they can make the traces within these circuits they're building on there. And that's what all the innovation that TI did. I mean, they built a $4 billion fabrication lab just a few years ago, uh, not very far from here, to make 
all kinds of integrated circuits. Yeah. So, I mean, just the whole point of that is this, that they took this little thing that was, you know, good for business at the time. It's like, hey, we can make these real cheap. We can sell a lot of them. And then from that germ of an idea, this whole, I mean, it's what made personal computers, what made our phones in our pockets yeah. possible. I find it interesting that the seismograph, Karcher, worked, Karcher and McDermott worked at Western Electric on the seismograph, the reflective seismograph, and AT&T couldn't use it. So they let him take it. The, t- the transistor was developed at Western Electric. They really didn't have any use for it other than to let TI license it. And so there's like a synchronicity there of their, their first business started from Western Electric. And then their big, big break kind of started from Western Electric as well. Well, there's a great podcast, uh, History of the Internet, that's going around. And it's a little dry for some. But if you're like me, it's really kind of interesting. But not only in terms of internet technology, but also if you look at the history of AT&T and the telephone companies and the Bell Labs, if you look at the history of companies like Apple and Xerox and IBM, and you start to really look at all this intellectual property and trade secrets and ideas that get floated around, you see that companies come up with stuff, and if it doesn't fit their business, it doesn't make sense for them to pour money down the rabbit hole. So to, to link this back, though, the fascinating thing to me and the great thing about TI and the great thing about Johnson is that those other companies that you described are on the East Coast or they're in California. But in Texas, the innovation that came from TI that sprung up from TI being located here, and then you get your other companies, you get your Nortels, you get your Tandys, you get your Raytheons. All these companies came into Dallas to mirror TI in a lot of ways and base a lot of their business on them. We're halt and catch fire is going on right now, and there is a an analog, a fictionalized kind of version of TI. The compact story. The compact story. But... That really came from, as well, from Texas Instruments being in Dallas. And they built this industry, and it, and, it, and it led to, it funneled back into Dallas being this cosmopolitan, modern city. It helps that image as well. But I think it's kind of cool is that if you think, talk about Texas cities to somebody, I say, Houston, you say, oil. You say, Fort Worth, they think, cattle. cattle. You say, Dallas, they think, technology and the TV show. Right. Texas Instruments, and there's so much high-tech here, and there was no high-tech here. And you'd just be like, I have this great idea for a company. I'm going to move to Dubuque, and I'm going to open a company and build an empire over the next 40 years. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to transform the city into one of the world's most interesting places in the world with this world-class airport and world-class everything. And it all just comes from this idea that one man's real vision drove a lot of of that. And being at the right... he was a stern hand on the tiller at the right time in history. Yes, and it took a vision to do that, and it took a drive and a commitment to do that, and that's what's extraordinary. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can also find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really, really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas, Texas wants you anyway. anyway.